My name's Tom. Um, my, my wife and I, uh, we came to London for what we thought was, you know, a couple of years, and yet almost 17 years, four kids and a, and a lot of life later, here we still are, and some of you, some of you I, I know well, and some of you are probably thinking, 17 years? I've never seen this guy in my life, you know, who is he? And this is probably partly because, you know, my so-called friends, as they like to remind me, that I do have pretty poor social skills and tend to hide what I'm here and get out as fast as I can. But also, I think for the last seven years, Marion and I have been primarily involved in a part of St. Paul's, which is, which is known as The Lounge. And it's, it's in the context of The Lounge, which actually I want to, I want to talk today. So today's reading the Sandy just read to us from James 2 is actually a passage that the lounge has discussed and considered and, and struggled with over the years. You know, is that true? No action means no faith. How does that fit with Jesus? And, you know, here's the free gift of life. And, and if it's true, why is it true? And how much action does James want before he's happy that we have faith? So a, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is our collective thinking from the lounge. The good stuff is and the boring bits I can point out later. But, but before I continue, a very lounge disclaimer. The problem with telling stories in a talk is whilst, you know, hopefully they're perhaps at least semi-interesting and perhaps capture a little of the, kind of the profound moments of a journey, they can only ever be, you know, 10%. You know, they're, they're never the whole truth. So, you know, frankly, it's hard enough keeping a room awake on a Sunday morning with good stories, never mind with the um, mundane <clears throat> litany of life. I mean, if I, if I was to pick a few of the, of the high moments of, you know, the 20 years uh, of my marriage, I'm pretty sure I could paint a picture of me being a cross between Mr. Darcy, Casanova, <laughs> Solomon. Problems, of course, when you, when you, when you go to congratulate my wife on her all-around good fortune, you know, she... She might remind you that the 90s from the time that I'm more like Homer Simpson. So whilst, whilst I don't want you to take the stories with a pinch of salt because they're true, I do want you to remember that, you know, even Jesus went to the toilet, but the gospel writers felt okay to admit the mundane. We are a lot more chaotic than this talk will make us sound. So disclaimer. So if you don't know, the lounge is, a, is an open community and while it primarily exists outside the confines of, of the building of St. Paul's, it's very much within the family of St. Paul's. And we try, we're trying to imagine that if, you know, if Jesus was walking these streets of this neighborhood, you know, where, where would he hang out? You know, who would he be hanging out with? What, what would he be doing? Um, for your information, 8 o'clock on Tuesday, he'd probably be at T.J. Duffy's. Unless, of course, Chris was talking about this Christmas shelter thing. Maybe he would be there, too. But more of that. There's leaflets in the, uh, in the welcome area if you want to know more about what we're about. And I mentioned TJ Duffy's because we try and meet regularly in places where people who wouldn't come into this building would go. Now, maybe they don't feel like socioeconomically they fit here. Maybe they're not Christian. Maybe they don't get the whole singing thing. Yes, there are people out there who think our singing is odd. You know, often they just feel like they're just screw-ups, not good enough to come. You know, and they have a history 
of being judged by people who look like us inside buildings with stained glass windows that look like this. Also, you know, the lounge, unorthodoxy, or perhaps more accurately, heresy, is seen as a genuine starting point you know, for a discussion on Jesus or the Bible. And people are okay with saying, you know, we were talking one week about Jesus and turning the other cheek, and this guy was like, no, hold on. Jesus, Jesus said turn the other cheek, but you know, I thought, bollocks to that, and I lapped him on with my left, and I'd do it again. Really? Yeah, you know, we're going, okay, okay. So, now, maybe that should be okay to be discussed here, but maybe they don't feel that. So while our motto, per se, is to provide the unconditional love and friendship of Jesus with each other and with our neighborhood, how do we do that? How, you know, in the lounge we talk about how we do that, but how do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we do that? And I think that's what James is all about. That's what he's getting at, you know, behind the words. So let me just read a little bit again. James 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by deed, is dead. So if faith without action is dead, perhaps faith with only a little bit of action is merely on life support. You know, studies, studies show that as humans, all of us, we tend to attribute <clears throat> more of the work undertaken by a group to ourselves than is actually true. In other words, we claim more of the reward or the credit than actually we, we deserve. And I'm going to venture that if there was an independent audit of those type of actions, which James is talking about, I mean actions, not writing checks, I think there's a real difference, that we would find, by the definition of faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead, that for a lot of us, if truthful, our faith is barely alive. It lives on, the, you know, lives on this life support from the occasional action that we do, and we kind of build up echoes maybe of past life, past actions we've done. Perhaps the efforts of those around us, but, but, but aren't us. And I know, let me just say I know, I know that many of you work unreasonable hours to survive. And I know that your life can be busy, it's stressful, and I know it can be hard. And I know that maybe you hurt, and that some days, you know, you barely feel that you can care for yourself, for those close to you, I know that evil may have been done to you, and I know that. I know that makes it difficult. And Jesus, Jesus didn't come to box us in. He came to show us the way out of the box that we have built or that others have built around us. Jesus did not come to condemn you. Jesus came to save. But, but save us from what? You know, I mean, the big theological question to put that to one side at the very least Jesus came to save us from ourselves you know, Jesus said come to me come come you know those of you that are you know you're weary or you're tired out come let me take those religious burdens let me take them off you here sit rest drink this is refresh you you're going to find peace with me because my ways 
I'm not going to crush you. But how does that, how does that square with James's words about no action means no faith? Well, you know, to be fair to James, his words can seem pretty harsh and judgmental here. Jesus did say, if you love me, you will follow my commands. Not my ideas or my philosophies or my top ten hints for a happier life. Jesus' words was commands. You know, and what are Jesus' commands? To love each other and to love God. <clears throat> Sorry. And to illustrate what Jesus' kind of love looks like, Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25, which seems to lay out pretty clearly what could well be the source of James' comments in his passage. Jesus says, look, there's going to come a day. And on that day, I'm going to separate those who I know, the sheep, from those who I don't know, those are the goats. And the sheep, they're going to come with me. And the goats won't. And, and here's how I'm going to know. See, those who clothed me when I was naked and fed me when I was hungry gave me something to drink when I was thirsty and visited me in prison, you're mine. And the rest of you, get away. Now, the sheep are going to ask, probably going to say, okay, glad to be on this side, Jesus, but when, uh, when, when did we do that for you? Uh, and the ghosts are going to say, hold on, Jesus, I never saw you hungry, I would have done something. When didn't we do that for you? And Jesus says this, when you did it for the poor, the stranger, the vulnerable, the abused, you did it for me. Beeson is a charity with an office in our church. And, that, and it works with social services and people in our church and our neighborhood have got time to give. And it connects the two together to meet the, the physical needs of, of the most vulnerable around us. So... If you're out on a some night, you arrive at a young woman's house, and this house has really no furniture, there's no carpet, no, just small tiles have just been ripped up, there's four or five kids, there's no heating. Who is Jesus in that story? Who's Jesus in that transaction? Okay. You can tell from the kids she's clearly had, you know, sex with a series of different guys. Maybe when she was drunk, maybe on drugs. She's maybe exposed her older children to abusive men who are the offspring of the younger children. In Jesus' story, who is he? Where is he as you come to that house? Jesus said, when you do it for the least of these, you're doing it for me. You see, Jesus is on the other side of that door. Jesus is with her. It's in her we find Jesus. It's not us being good and doing good. Jesus says, when you do it for the least of these, you're doing it for me. The young woman in her poverty, spiritual poverty, financial poverty, is where Jesus is. When we meet her, we meet Jesus. You want to meet Jesus? You know, maybe you want to find him again to know him how you once knew him. 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't come to church. We shouldn't come Tuesday nights to hungry and to worship and to pray. But you want to meet Jesus again? He is amongst the forgotten, the neglected, the screw-ups, the failures. He is with where he's always been, the prostitutes and the tax collectors of our day. In his mercy, in his mercy, he's often here on a Sunday, but he is always there. You know what? It's for our good. As much as their good, he is calling us to him. To be there with poor, lonely, people who are makers of terrible, destructive decisions, addicts, people who are infirm and can't leave their house. God tells us in Amos, he says, you know what? Where there's religion and no action, I don't care about your songs or your coming to church or the money you put in the plate. If you're not looking after the single mom, the poor, the immigrant, that other stuff means nothing. In fact, the hypocrisy of it makes me sick. He says, I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness for these people. Oceans of it. But he also says through Isaiah, but when you do this stuff, when you do it, when you take action, then your healing will come. And your relationship with me, your righteousness, will be like the dawn breaking forth. You know, I know these are strong words. I know that. You know, I write them thinking, can I say that? But sometimes we turn God into, into Santa Claus. You know, we turn Jesus into, you know, cuddly boyfriend, best buddy, hanging with Jesus. You know, and others turn him into this damning, angry father. You know, but he's neither. <clears throat> he is strong and he is, yes, very strong. You know, but in the words of C.S. Lewis, he is wild, he's untamable, but he's also gentle. To the psalmist, he is kind, he is patient, and very, very slow to anger. You know, he's like this gentle father, and he's stooping down, he's putting his arm around, he's, he's pointing out and saying, look, look, you know, look over there, look at that loneliness. We can't let that go on, can we? We have to do something about that. That's not how I meant it to be. Come on, Tom. Tom, you need to act. Come on, we'll do it together. You know, and even when I reply, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so tired, you know. I gave someone some money. I spent my whole day keeping family happy, work happy. He replies, Tom, Tom, but it isn't just them I'm thinking of. It's you too. Tom, if you harden your heart to those who struggle to look after themselves, if you put yourself at the center of the world, it's going to dry you out. It's going to empty you. I don't want that for you, Tom. We are God's plan to meet their need. There is no plan B. You know, I can always imagine there's a few angels up there, and they're like, okay, Jesus, so, uh, right, the plan is to use Tom. Yep. Okay. The same Tom who spends hours feeling sorry for himself in his four-bedroom house because he has no garden. Boo-hoo-hoo. Yeah, that's him. What do you think? Okay, the same Tom with the social skills of a doorknob and the practical skills of a surgeon wearing boxing gloves. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) You know he's uh, lazy. Uh Uh-huh. And then he, shall we say, uses a colorful language. Yeah, I know. 
Look, I don't like to snitch, but the other day I noticed he was, yes, 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 you know, but come on, he's bitter, insecure, defensive, judgmental, critical, yes, and that is why we've got to use Tom. You sure? Yes. Plan B, no. He's in a box. I'm going to help him get out. He's going to be in my hands, my ears, my eyes. He's going to be my justice. He's going to help bring fairness because I want oceans of it for that neighborhood. You see, and that's God's plan for you too. Whatever state you're in, however holy you are, however not holy you are, however able you feel, that's the plan. There's no plan B. I want to end with a story of a woman who walked into the lounge one day and to whom Jesus is used to take us from talking about what does James 2 mean, what does James 2 mean to starting, and I mean just starting because we are very at the beginning of pushing us into action about living what James 2 is about. For her privacy, I'm going to call her Mary. Uh, well, she's very open about her story, but I think it's her story to tell you. So for the talk, I'm going to call her Mary. And I checked all this with her. She used to just come in and say, you know, hi guys. I know we've got all these studies scheduled out for the lounge, but you see there's this bunch of stuff in the Beesom shed, and there's a single mum in Southall, and she really needs it. You know, the kids are sleeping on the floor. Can we just can the schedule and take the stuff to her? Can we do that next week? And we're like, yeah, okay, just once. And here we are, two or three years later, and every month she has us out there. And we're out there doing it. Now, how did Mary get to be this way? Because she's really, really, really good. She read her Bible five minutes every day, did a quiet time, only listens to worship music in the car. No, that isn't how Mary got to be that person. Mary was born out of wedlock almost 60 years ago when there was a price to be paid for being born out of wedlock. And her, uh, Mary's mother had been left with relatives when her grandmother had emigrated to Canada and some money had been left. The relatives took that money and kicked Mary and her mother out. Two years later, the grandmother came back, found Mary's mother, and told her she could come to Canada with her too, but not with that illegitimate child. Mixed race, illegitimate child. Didn't want anything to do with it. So they took Mary, age two, to a brothel and left her there. In the brothel, Mary was given alcohol and was abused by patrons. Later, the brothel decided to sell Mary. Now luckily, the, the uh, police got wind of this and raided the brothel and took Mary into care. They put her in a foster home, but 16 years ago, being the only uh, black person in the village, led to petitions to have her removed from the village because they didn't want people like her there. These failed, but she grew up in that environment. At 18, Mary got pregnant and she had a little girl. This little girl was the only thing she felt she had. When the baby was six months old, Mary's foster mother colluded with social services and had the baby taken away from Mary and handed over to the foster mother who then kicked Mary out because she wanted the baby. Mary got pregnant again. This time her boyfriend pimped her out while she was pregnant. She was beaten up. She was abused. Somehow Mary found the strength to get away with her baby boy and she stole food so they could eat. She slept on train platforms. And eventually she got to London as a live-in nanny. And she raised her son. And Jesus found her in this box that is so hellish. 
that very few of us can fathom or even want to fathom. And she took his hand and she followed him out. And she now spends her time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours each year, amongst the needy of our neighborhood, who she would say are much worse off than her. We've got to help. She still has a little money, poor health. Her life is you know, more difficult than most of us. But like God promised through Isaiah, her healing has come. And her relationship with God shines like that morning sun, like the dawn. And I know when Jesus counts his sheep and sees her, he's thinking, there you are, there you are. And look how many you have brought with you. And when I mean brought with you, that's us who she's taken out of our cozy, little safe world of talking about faith. You know, it's Tuesday night, I'm at work, I'm stressed, I'm tired, I'm not representing Jesus very well with my colleagues, let's put it that way. Mary's organized another beesome night, and I've got to get across London, I've got to get changed, I've got to try and be a dad, say hello to my kids, get out the door, I'm not willing, I'm not happy, I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself able. But two hours you know, later when I get in, more often than not, even if the evening has been the usual lounge chaos, I have found peace. And I know that Jesus has found me in the box where I hide. And he has brought me a step closer to the light. Now the poor person I built a bed for is probably crushed underneath, but, you know, we have rarely it for that. But because of Mary in the lounge's life, my kids know the following Jesus means doing some type work. It means opening up our house um, to have dinner for anyone that comes along once a month. They know that there are people within moments of our door, there are people within moments of where you sit who live on floors with no carpets, with holes in the wall, and minus four degrees in the winter. They live in houses with no electricity and seven children. And I know because I've been there. And you know what? There is no plan B. We are Jesus' hands, his mouth, his ears. You know what? Jesus cares for the needy. The needy is us. And it's them. Jesus is asking you to act. He came to save you in whatever state you're in, however busy you are, he came to save you. You know, wouldn't it be incredible if every life group canceled part of their autumn program and emptied the besom shed, there was nothing left to distribute. And then prayed and really wanted it so that the shed filled up again and they emptied again. Or they sent visitors to, out to the clients of Christians Against Poverty to be friends, to be real long-term friends. Or they took part in the Christmas you know, shelter. You know, what would that do for our neighborhood? What if hundreds of us did that once or twice a month? Because you see, don't you realize, we, we are all Mary. We are in a box. She knew she was in a box. It was obvious. The story is horrific. We hide our box, right? The shame of it. So she isn't the person that we clothe or feed. She's the person who Jesus said, you're my daughter. Come here, come here. Your family, your family. Me and you. We're going to go do that. We're going to fix this. And you and I, Jesus saying, Tom, Tom, come here. Come with me. Come with me. You're my son. We're family. We've got to go do this together. 
James reminds us to act, you know, for the needy, the needy being us. I gently put it to you that Jesus commands us, commands us to act. Amen.